Good evening. So I actually had a player ask me recently, uh, one of my playtesters, we've been playing some casual games over the last few weeks and uh, I have been on a streak of playing the neutral faction. And I actually let it slip that they were probably my favorite faction to play. And they asked me why, because they thought I was a hardcore Lannister player. Um, the thing about that regard is that while I do like the Lannister playstyle with its manipulation and things like that, most of the time when I'm playing forces in games, I prefer a measure of versatility uh, as my army. I like to have a toolbox that I can draw from. And the thing is, is that that's exactly what the neutral faction brings. I have to say that of the three available factions right now, the Starks, the um, Lannisters, and the Neutrals, Neutrals are actually probably my favorite one to play, uh, even given their limited unit pool. Now, we've already talked about the uh, Night's Watch and the Free Folk existing now. Uh, I'm going to save any type of content for when they're actually out so we can, you know, actually focus on the things that are current. Because this is being recorded, the game isn't even out yet, so, you know, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But, so, as I just said, the neutral faction has a strong theme of just versatility, because, well, they don't have a given theme in that. Um, like the Starks, you know, they're going to be your aggressive, offensive-focused faction. The Lannisters are defensive-focused with restoration abilities and disruption tactics. The neutrals, by their design and existence, have to be kind of, you know, well, generic. That's not to say that they don't have their own little playstyle and tricks. They actually make heavy use of condition tokens and disrupting guys in ways the Lannisters don't. Lannisters have a lot of focus on panic and morale manipulation, whereas the neutrals are just going to kind of mess with you in a lot of other ways. And I'm really drawn to that kind of playstyle personally. And it doesn't hurt the fact that I really have an affinity for House Bolton as well, which currently comprise basically 100% of your neutral forces. Uh, surprise spoilers, by the way. Um, there's going to be more neutral stuff in the future that's not just regulated to House Bolton. Uh, of course, I'm not going to talk about when that's going to come out because I don't like those type of spoilers. But for right now, you know, we have a focus on House Bolton, which brings its own unique play style to the table because they manipulate panic tokens in a way that's different than Lannisters. Lannisters make use of panic tokens to really uh, bolster their morale-based effects. Uh, Bolton specifically makes use of it to deal a lot of damage, but also to trigger a lot of their own unique playstyles. And that's actually something that I'm drawn to with the neutral faction, is that more than most any other faction, your commander is really going to dictate your playstyle, because they're going to usually synergize with different units that you have. Which again, we're talking about a limited pool here because we're talking about Boltons, but they're a good example to, you know, take this and even look at things moving forward. So I figured today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look through the neutral uh, everything <laughs> and give you guys some insight and just my thoughts of everything as a whole, why I like it, and, you know, just my general why this is the faction that I personally enjoy playing. And sadly, you know, underrepresented right now because I see a lot of people there, it's I know it's because of the limited unit pool. I mean, people like playing with variety as well. But, um, guys, you, you gotta branch out. I mean, yeah, Flademen are good, but <laughs> they're not gonna carry games for you once your opponent knows what they're doing, okay? I promise you that. You really need to branch out and look at some other tactics here, but we'll get into that. We're gonna start by looking at the generic neutral tactics cards, which are going to really kind of uh, encapsulate this whole uh, thing that I'm saying about them having this nice little tackle box or toolbox of abilities. So the first one we're looking at is Bribery, which is when you claim the Wealth Zone of the Tactics board, 
You may replace the zone's effect with one of the following. One enemy unit becomes weakened and loses all abilities this round. Or one enemy in CU loses all abilities and may not activate. Uh, by the way, just before we get into things, the tactics cards have a strong focus on the wealth zone and the tactics zone. So those are the two ones you're really going to want to focus on uh, as far as getting the you know, most benefit out of your cards. Bribery I like a lot because I feel the wealth zone is underutilized by a lot of players. Um, and it is a responsive one. It's used when you know you need to do healing. So therefore it's only you know useful in the middle or late stages of the game. And that's fine. But what bribery does here is it allows the neutral um, faction to claim the zone they want and use it or utilize it early game to gain different effects than you know healing guys are wasting it just because you want some boost. And frankly, these effects are really powerful and I like them a lot. Um, targeting an enemy unit and just shutting off all their abilities is super nice because it fixes problems, okay? Oh, you know, so, uh, <laughs> someone has invested in a bunch of uh, Knights of Casterly Rock with a mountain. Okay, well, let's go ahead and not only make them weaken, but let's just shut off all those shenanigans for the rest of the round. Problem solved. I hope you enjoyed your 12-point unit. Um, Umber Berserkers with, you know, Mage Mormont. We need to crack through those guys, or, you know, we don't want them to deal so much damage. Okay, congrats, you're now weakened and you don't have any abilities, so I don't have to worry about your Sundering. Yeah, you're throwing still a bunch of attacks at me, but, you know, I can go and safely attack you. Your Stalwart's uh, turned off, although that really doesn't matter in that case. You know, this fixes problems. It's one of my favorite cards in the uh, of their generic cards, and one that you're definitely going to be putting a lot of use to. And the other nice aspect about the neutral guys is that you have a lot of card cycling, so you can usually fix a problem and then find a way to get that fixed back if you need to keep doing it. Uh, the next card is probably, I think, the uh, fan favorite that everyone who sees the deck, like they're like, oh, this one's really cool, and that's Wealth and Cunning. Uh, when a friendly unit attacks or is attacked, in each case after dice rolled, uh, if attacking, you deal an additional D3 automatic hits, or plus 3 if you control the tactic zone. If defending, you automatically block D3 hits, or 3 hits if you control the wealth zone. Everyone likes to just automatically block damage or deal extra damage, and you know this is that's just the basics of it, and so everyone likes this card. I mean, it's just, there's never a bad time to have this card in your hand because you're always going to make use of it. And it's really hard to, you know, dislike a card like that. I've never heard anyone go like, man, this card's wasted, and discarding it. Uh, that person would be insane. So, not really a lot to say about that one. It's just a generically good card. Worth the reward. When a friendly unit would fail a panic test, you may re-roll that panic test. If you control the wealth zone, they automatically pass this test instead. This is one of those cards that, again, fixes problems. So, if you're up against Lannisters, this card will be invaluable because you get to re-roll your panic test. If you control your wealth zone, then you just automatically pass it. Uh, this is not always going to be useful depending on who you're playing against. So like if I'm playing against Starks, they're not really going to have a lot of panic effects on me. And so this card is going to be useful when I need it, but not so much, you know, in general. This is like, oh man, I really botched a roll here and I rolled badly on my panic. I'm glad I have this. But it's not one I'm going to hold in my hand and go like, yeah, this is going to counter their effects. Unless I'm playing against, you know, a faction that makes use of it, which is actually the Mirror Match and Lannisters. So... Here we have a card that is you know, useful most of the time, but in the right situations becomes just an ace in the hole. And that's what I feel about a lot of these uh, cards in this deck. And that's, again, something I like about them. I feel like I always have something to answer a problem when it comes up. And that's something I like about this playstyle. Adaptive Methods. Anytime. Expend one condition token on an enemy unit as if it were any other condition token. 
If you control the tactic zone, you may also move one condition token from any unit friendly or enemy to any other unit. Again, this one here is great because condition tokens, I still feel, are one of the most underutilized things in the game. If you throw weakened on someone, you're going to you know, basically remove that unit uh, from being a big threat to you, unless the opponent actually does something about that token. And most opponents don't want to invest the resources in doing that, or don't have a way to do that. Um, if you have a high defense unit that you need to really crack through, then vulnerable is great on them. Uh, panicked is good if, you know, again, you need to go through the morale route. So this one here allows you to, at any point, make whatever token you have on them uh, a solution that works for you. You need them to be weakened, bam, they're weakened. You need them to be vulnerable, bam, they're vulnerable. Again, this just opens up the options that you have to really fix a problem right when you need to. Okay, I know I keep hammering that fact in, but that's really what this deck is about. So you need to get that in your head. You have the tools to fix problems. You just need to know how to work those tools. Surprise strategy. Start of any turn. Opponents may not play tactics cards this turn. Remove this card from the game instead of discarding it when it's played. If you control the tactics zone, you may also return one discarded tactics card to your hand. Uh, this is getting back into that whole like card cycling aspect. You know, you're going to claim the tactics zone early in the round, um, get yourself some extra cards, throw down a condition token, um, great general stuff, and then this card will allow you to just pull one back. So you can, you know, pull back a adaptive methods to get, you know, another use of a condition token that you just placed. You can pull back a wealth and cunning. You know, just getting cards back from your discard pile is a bit of a rare effect, and it is very powerful because. You know, those are limited resources. You only have two of each card in your deck, and being able to pull them back and use them again, it's great. Uh, next one we have here, Cunning Scheme. Start a friendly turn. Return one discarded, uh, or, eh, return one tactics card from your discard pile to your hand. If you control the tactics zone, one opponent must also discard one tactics card at random. So this pairs up with everything I just said there. Uh, you have four cards in your deck that are potentially able to return discarded tactics cards to your hand. So 4 out of 20, you know, one-fifth of your deck is able to cycle cards. And that's a actually a bigger element than a lot of people are going to give credit for in this deck is because you have the ability to do so. Um, and again, you're able to pull problems, sorry, pull solutions to problems when you need to do so. Uh, you just have to know what your deck is capable of and, you know, be able to identify those problems and the best move at that potential time. And that comes from just playing games over and over again and, you know, really learning how things work. Next one, Spoils of War. When an enemy unit is destroyed, roll a d6 and restore that many wounds plus two total across any number of friendly units. If you control the wealth zone, you may roll two dice and select the highest result. So even on the worst roll here, you're going to restore three wounds across your army. Um... If you control the wealth zone, which frankly about the time that units should start getting destroyed, you really should invest into it, roll two dice and select the highest. So potential max on this one is that you can restore up to eight wounds, aka two full ranks, across your army. And that's just a fantastic amount of healing. If you have a unit that is down to one rank, you can heal them up to full with this card. Uh, really, though, this is good for topping off ranks. I see a lot of um, players when they play, they just kind of want to dump all these into a single unit and, you know, yay, you know, I've got back my unit back to full. Unit doesn't need to be a full. It needs to be at exactly one guy in that third rank to reach its maximum potential. Unless they're holding objective or some other situation, but really that's to me like the kind of capping off point um, that I need to heal guys up to. Unless they're in a real dangerous spot. 
Either way, this card is the single largest source of healing in the game, uh, namely because it does require you to destroy an enemy. And most card, uh, most factions do have cards that play off of destroying enemies or being destroyed. This just happens to be the one for the neutral forces, and it is a fantastic healing element. You'll notice that as we've been looking through all seven of these generic cards, there's not an overarching theme. I mean, you've got two cards that are going to help you cycle. You've got one that's going to heal, one that's going to deal damage and prevent uh, effects, another one that's going to um, you know, help you reroll your panic. So overall, each of these cards has a very specific use, and there's not a large overarching theme here, aside from just, this fixes a problem, this fixes a problem, this fixes another problem. Well, there's your theme right there. And that's why I like these cards, uh, because regardless of the army you're playing, your opponent's never going to really be able to kind of um, shoehorn you into knowing exactly what you're going to be doing, because you can adapt on the fly, uh, especially the Boltons. If you need to go just raw aggress uh, aggression with someone and take them out in combat, you can do that. If you need to start hammering their morale and winning via panic test, you have means of doing that as well. If you need to just hold objectives and really be on the, the defense, you've got methods of making that happen uh, too. Versus like Starks. Starks are never going to have a huge amount of, you know, morale-based effects. So if they're coming across an enemy that has a really high defense rating across their army, they might struggle because they're going to have to rely on some sundering and just some raw aggression to really punch through. But you kind of know what to expect. They're going to be fast, they're going to come at you, and they're going to hit you really hard. Okay? But that strategy is probably not going to change too much. Unless they're running some very specific, like, Tully list or things, but that's a corner case. Uh, Lannisters, you know that they're not going to have the biggest combat punch. They're really going to be hitting you through panic tests. So you've got to be able to, you know, claim those zones to get them, make sure they don't get crowned. You've got to uh, have effects, you know, stay away from corpse piles. Have effects that are going to help you reroll and restore wounds. Um, but you're going to be able to focus more of your efforts on combat. So you're going to be able to, you know, counter what they're going after. Same with Starks, you know, okay, targeting Stark morale is probably not the best thing in the world, but you can kind of beat them in combat if you do a combination of just hitting them hard and making sure they're dead so they're not just kind of strugglingly surviving because that's when Starks are their, you know, most dangerous. You've got ways of finishing off units. So that's the thing when you're playing neutrals. You can have a general strategy, but you need to be able to adapt on the fly, and that's really what this faction is going to reward is people that can look at the army across the table and analyze its weaknesses and then exploit those weaknesses. So, you know, if I'm playing Lannisters, there's only so many ways that I know I'm going to be able to win the game, and it's all going to revolve around this central strategy. Same thing with Starks. Um, and if the solution doesn't fall on the parameters of what my army can do, it's going to be a bit of a tougher fight for me. Uh, but here of neutrals, because I'm going in with basically no set-in-stone game plan, I'm free to just make it up on the fly. You know, okay, Lannisters, I can go kill you in combat. Or actually, the smarter play in that case is start using your own morale and panic-based effects against you, because not only am I stealing those resources from you, but they're also, you know, not really good at handling it themselves. With the Starks, okay, I just need to be able to weather your initial attack and then hit you back harder. Which, since I'm doing a combination of armor-piercing effects and uh, also, you know, panic-based stuff, I can probably in the end out damage them um well that's not true i'm never going to win a straight up damage contest with starks so i'm going to need to be a little sneakier about it um and again this is going to play into which commander you're playing which let's get into right now because we have two options right now when it comes to 
the neutral forces, and that's Roos Bolton or Ramsey Bolton. Well, Ramsey Snow, technically. So with Roos, when I take him, I'm going to be playing a much more control aspect because he is a non-combat character, and his cards are all focused around um, giving me additional control options off the board. Ramsey is a much more combat-focused commander, and actually I do kind of prefer Ramsey just because I do have that like aggressive playstyle, but I have a full respect for what Roos does. So let's look at his tactics cards. The first one we have is Calculated Cruelty. When a panicked enemy activates, you expend a panic token from them, and that unit and its attachments lose all abilities this round. If they're within short range of House Bolton unit, they suffer D3 wounds. Okay, the D3 wounds is gravy on top of this. Granted, it's uh, a good solution to uh, hurt stuff like, you know, solo guys like the Mountain, or, you know, okay, not talking too much about the future, but like Giants. Um, but really, this is giving you another tool in your arsenal to shut off unit abilities. Which means if you're playing Roos, you've got two cards now with Bribery and Calculated Cruelty. They're going to help you just remove threats for a round. And, you know, that's that's just a beautiful thing, okay? I mean, just turning something off entirely uh, is just such a nice way to, you know, okay, you know, now I can kind of ignore you. A flayed man has no secrets. Start of any turn, expend a panic token from an enemy unit. Look at one opponent's hand of tactics cards and discard one card from him. This is nice because, well, you're going to know everything your opponent's going to do. And if you're playing an opponent like some of the ones I play against here, that really like investing in that tactic zone to really have a hand of, you know, say between five and six tactics cards at any time, this is going to help you, know, look at their hand and know, okay, I need to get rid of this clutch card for them, but I also know the rest of their nasty little tricks that they're going to have for the rest of the round. So, you know, in general, knowledge is power, and this is a good example of that. And then his last card, which is Fear Keeps a Man Alive. Uh, when engaged, panicked enemy activates. You expend a panic token from that enemy, and they need to make a morale test. On a failure, the only action they can do is retreat. And a House Bolton, their uh, unit they're engaged with, does heal up to D3 wounds. Again, second effect is nice for the healing, but really, you are taking away an action from a unit in this round uh, by making it so they can only retreat. Now, noting that they can always choose to do nothing, and, you know, just sit there, but then they're wasting an entire activation. This is going to be another one of those control aspect cards. So between Fear Keeps a Man Alive and Calculated Cruelty and Bribery, you have ways to just completely control your opponent unless they start, you know, doing some counterplay against you. Uh, funny enough, the, the best counterplay there is for them to, early in the round, take that wealth zone, because then that's going to prevent you from playing Bribery, and it's going to allow them to probably remove Condition Tokens uh, from their units, so you can't uh, trigger Fear Keeps a Man Alive or really any of Roos' effects. So that's a good counter there, but in general, you know, Roos is a very control aspect uh, commander, and that's a great play style. There's not really another one that's like it to the extent that Roos is. Uh, now he splashes well in other armies, but using utilizing that neutral tactics deck, you're getting just additional tools that help you really double down on these control aspects, and it's just, it's really a good playstyle if you're into those kind of mind game things. Next we get into Ramsey, which as I mentioned before is much more outwardly aggressive. And you know, I think people like they see Roos's cards, they see the aspects of control that he gives them, and they really gravitate toward that. Um, Ramsey is actually my go-to commander because he can deal a absurd amount of damage and really put some nasty effects on your opponent but they aren't exactly obvious. So let's get through his tactics cards here and I'll explain what I mean. The first one is probably his easiest one to understand. Our blades are sharp. When friendly unit attacks with melee, if targeting a panicked enemy, they gain plus one hit and roll plus two dice. 
If it's a House Bolton unit, the defender also becomes vulnerable. This might be the single highest damage dealing tactics card in the game, theoretically. Um, plus one to hit, plus two dice. Alright, let's look at that. Your standard unit that you're going to play this on, or let's say Bolton Cutthroats. Now they're rolling at their max ranks 10 dice and hitting on twos with Vicious. Okay, I, I really shouldn't need to explain why that raw number of attacks is something that's super nasty. And because they're naturally House Bolton, the defender also becomes vulnerable, so they're rerolling all their saves. This damage output is only rivaled by like the Mountainsmen with an Assault Veteran, who can also throw out um, 10 dice with Critical Blow and Vicious. Uh, here though, you're basically trading it for Vulnerable and, well, that's really all you're trading for is Vulnerable. Um, noting that because they have to be panicked, you're also getting that effect, which couples with the Vicious they have built in. Now, yes, the, um, the Flademen, I'm sorry, I mean the, uh, the Cutthroats also, they have an effect where if you target a unit that has not activated, they become vulnerable, so technically you could waste this on this, on them. But, okay, it's not really wasted, it's more so you're just not utilizing 100% of the effect. But frankly here, the efficiency of plus one to hit, moving you from a three plus to a two plus, and giving you the extra two dice is, you know, fantastic enough. Uh, and again, because you're having to target a panicked enemy, and that's going to synergize really well with the vicious that the cutthroats have. That single attack with ten dice hitting on twos, with vulnerable, with vicious, with a panic token, I mean, there's not a single unit that you should not be able to just decimate with that. Uh, a lot of people, though, sit there and go, okay, well, um, I need more panic in my life. That's great, because you have sadistic games, which is a server-friendly turn. Your opponent chooses one of the following effects, and then you choose targets after they uh, have chosen which effect. Either they can let two of their units become panicked, or one enemy unit suffers D3 plus two automatic hits. I've spoken about this at length, but people seem to have just a crippling fear of letting their units suffer D3 plus two hits. Noting that, like, okay, let's break down some math here. Uh, the best I can roll in this is five, so that's five automatic hits. Most units have a four-plus defense save. All right, so odds are they're going to pass 50% of the time. So at the best-case scenario on average here, best case on average, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, whatever, um, they're going to suffer about three wounds, all right? Usually, though, they're going to probably suffer about, you know, two to three on average. Um... But that still seems to be just a, a really big mental um, block for people that they just don't want to run that potential. So they tend to pick two of their units become panicked, which in the long run uh, against uh, this deck specifically, and not even just talking about Ramsey, is so much uh, potentially worse for you. Namely because, like we just talked about, our blades are sharp. Um, and then you also have adaptive methods in the generic list that you know you can just turn that pan token to anything else. But the mentality behind this is that people they see the the D3 plus two hits and that's immediate. That's something bad that's going to happen to me right now. The panic tokens, oh well, you know that's going to something in the future and that's something that they can deal with then. Um, and I gotta say, like the smart thing is usually just take the hits. Now. That's not always the best case because you might have a unit that will get finished off by them or that you really don't want to lose a rank on. So, of course, you know, there's no, oh, we'll always pick this option. That's the whole point is it's giving you two bad choices. But a lot of people are really, really quick to just pick that first option. And in the long term, it's going to come back to bite them. Now, I've talked about that at length, so I'm not going to go over it anymore. But just think about, you know, who you're playing against and the board state before you just go, oh, yeah, two panic tokens, whatever.
And the last card for Ramsey is my personal, um, I'm not going to say favorite because I have a very mixed history of this card, and that's Cruel Methods. At the start of the round, a friendly unit may make a free attack action. If it does not destroy an enemy, then it suffers a panic test and rolls mi and will play minus three to the roll. If it's House Bolton unit, it may use its highest value attack die and may also reroll any misses. So this is a good card in theory when you uh, have like one rank left on your unit and it's really coming down to who's going to get that first activation. Are you going to destroy the enemy or are they going to destroy you? This takes the guesswork out of that. This allows you to just go bam, start of the round, I'm making an attack. I'm using the highest value I possibly can. Let's go back to our example of Cutthroats. Your unit obviously has not activated yet, so I'm going to make you vulnerable. I'm using eight dice. I'm rerolling any misses. Uh, I'm vicious. I've got a strong chance of dealing a lot of damage. If I don't, though, then I am probably going to have wiped myself out or really, really have just hurt my unit. Because even the uh, the best, um, you know, uh, Bolton morale, let's say it's a six plus, this is forcing me to roll that on nine. Average roll is going to be a seven, so I'll lose two guys there, but... We know how the dice gods are, right? Um, this card right here, theoretically, is one of my favorites. Uh, over the last like two weeks, every time I've played this card, I've done zero damage on my attack and ended up wiping out my own unit. And it's just been hilarious to the extent that that keeps happening. Um, in theory, though, a really solid card. Because not only is this going to give you a free attack action, but it's going to allow you to do that before anything else in the round happens. So your opponent's not going to have time to you know prep it with... you know. Um, uh, the tactic zone, you're not going to have to give up an activation to do it. I mean, this is a fantastic card here, but you just have to be aware that it can backfire, which is true of some strategies here, but really, in a world where math actually works and you don't just pitch a bunch of ones when you need twos, this card should be doing some good work for you. Uh, because again, you're playing Ramsey, the majority of your guys should be House Bolton, so they should be getting that last effect. Now, this one is actually fairly important here because I wouldn't use this card. Um, yeah, I would very hesitantly use this card if I were not playing it on a House Bolton guy because that last effect of using your highest value attack die and rerolling any misses is such a good boost. Now there are going to be some you know guys that don't need this. So you know if you're playing, for example, uh, a Stark army led by Ramsey, oh yeah, feel free to just throw this on some berserkers because they don't really care about that panic test anyway. And free attack is free attack, right? So. Again, like every tactic card, the situation matters, but I really like this as having my ultimate ace in the hole. It's just that this one here, every time I play it, it tends to catch fire and then burn all my stacks of money, uh, if you want that poker analogy. I guess that's how that works. I don't know. <laughs> so that's going over all the tactics cards. Uh, let's now jump over into the actual units in the game here and start exploring some of them as to why I really like them. Let's start with the non-combat guys because unfortunately right now with the uh, scope of the neutrals, this is going to be your most limited factor. You're actually only going to have three options and one of them is a commander. Uh, Roos Bolton is one option. Uh, his commander card helps you put out some uh, panic tokens across to help fuel his effects because you're going to replace the uh, effect of any zone with up to two enemy combat units become panicked. Okay, nice little effect. Uh, helps you get out those tokens, as I said, but more so it also helps you just deny other zones uh, to the enemy. But it also can help you in like the early stages of the game, as I previously mentioned, take that wealth zone where you might not need that healing and still gain all those secondary effects from it. Um, so he's nice, but again, the issue is that if you take him, 
he has to be your commander as the NCU. So that really leaves us two other options unless we want to, you know, shoehorn ourselves into running a roost list. And that's Peter Baelish and Lord Varus. Now, Peter is great in general just because he allows you free reign of the tactics board to really claim zones and just replace the effects. So, say you don't need any additional tactics cards. Okay, well, but you have a bunch of cards that are triggering off that zone. Claim that zone, replace it with a free move in action, a free, you know, attack action, whatever you need at the time. Peter is the ultimate kind of problem solver when it comes to the tactics board and especially early activations. He can help you deny enemies, so, you know, Say you're running against a Lannister list that has Cersei in the crown, a really annoying combo, but with him, he just straight turns her off. Like, boom, okay, I've taken crown from you. Now Cersei, yeah, you're going to get, you know, someone's going to get minus two morale, but I'm not going to get, you know, zapped across the field for a minus three. You know, oh no, poor me. And frankly, once you take that away from Cersei, she loses a lot of her luster, which, by the way, general strategy talk here, uh, counterpick zones, people, because that's kind of an important thing to do. Um... You know, Cersei, like, for is the good example there. She can be really annoying, but the second you take that crown away from her, her potential really jumps down. Because, yeah, okay, someone's going to get a minus two to their panic test around, but you got to actually start causing those tests. So, just noting there, but Peter helps you with that. The next option you have is going to be Lord Varus, who is actually one of my favorite non-combat guys in the entire game, just because, again, he fixes problems. And when he works, he does fantastic work and when he decides he's going to do nothing god damn do i hate him <laughs> uh so his effect is he begins the game with four order tokens on him and when an enemy in ncu claims his own on the tax board you may expend one order token and roll a die on a three plus the ncu loses all abilities until the end of the round or you can cancel the effect of the claim zone these are both fantastic effects and it's going to put pressure on your opponent uh, I will say that Varus is probably one of the most annoying NCUs to play against if you yourself are only running one NCU. Uh, at 30 points, when most players are only going to be running one NCU, Varus becomes really obnoxious because now he only has one target, you know, that uh, around for the, the effect of his, um, for his effects. So, say, you know, you're playing against Lannisters who are running Cersei. Well, you can basically... Uh, almost assume that she is never going to influence someone. Uh, you've got Caitlyn. People love throwing Caitlyn on some Berserkers. Well, sorry, she's not going to do anything there. And even if they're running a bunch of NCUs that don't have effects themselves, uh, like, for example, if they're running just Sansa, who has a once-per-game that, you know, uh, yes, Varus could theoretically stop. If she claims a zone, he can turn her off for a round, but that's probably not going to happen. Um, I mean, you could. I wouldn't see a real big point to that. Um, you can also just, again, cancel the effect of the claim zone, which is just nice in general, because all the zones are useful and you never want your opponent to, you know, have nice things. So Varus is a good problem solver. Uh, he's strict counterplay, so you're giving up the ability to do something cool yourself to just stop the opponent from doing something cool. But the thing about that is, as I talked about in general with this faction, uh, you are very adaptive, okay? You can always change your plans when you need to. Your opponent might not always have that luxury. So being able to just shut them down and stopping their plan is a really important element for the neutral faction as a whole because you're always going to have a solution, okay? You're always going to have something you can do to help yourself in a situation. Your opponent might not. And if you take whatever key thing that they have away from them, it's going to probably end up hurting them a lot more than it does you. So those are my thoughts on the two non-combat characters uh, with the neutral faction. They're great options, and, you know, yeah, you only have those two right now, but, frankly, they're both great. So 
you know, I, I don't really feel too bad about that. Now, as far as talking about units go, you're going to have three and a half options right now. So something I'm going to get out of the way, and by the way, spoilers for people, um, I will go ahead and just talk about this a bit. So one of the units that we previewed in the Kickstarter that was not available in the Kickstarter was the House Bolton Blackguards. Uh, they're basically the heavy defense unit for the uh, neutral faction, and specifically House Bolton. Uh, they have a 3-plus defense, a 7-plus morale, and a bunch of stats and everything, and they do stuff. Okay, here's the thing. Uh, as we pointed out in the Kickstarter update when we first revealed them, which I believe was actually December... Oh, no, it was a January update because it was New Year's. Yes, that was a <laughs> staggering seven months ago. Um, these guys have still been going through the development cycle. Well, sorry, back then they were going through the development cycle and everything. They're finished now. Uh, they have changed a bit from their initial forms. Um, and you know what? I will actually give a small amount of spoilers to talk about that for a second. Um, while I'm not going to talk about any of their other changes that happen to them, I will talk about that they do not have the spiked armor rule anymore, uh, which originally said, when the unit is attacked with melee, for each defense save roll of a six, the attacker suffered one wound. Um, that was a fine ability. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It was kind of a little weird that uh, it would potentially up your damage output the more hits you took, and so therefore it was more beneficial for you to get hit more often than it was not. But that's kind of like a little mental schism. Uh, they no longer have that ability. They have something else entirely. And the reason for that being is because while that effect is cool, it really wasn't playing into the general tactics that House Bolton represents which is, you know, uh, throwing down panic and hurting you for being panicked. Uh, I'm not going to spoil what they do now, but I will say for all the players out there, that effect did change. Uh, some of their other stats here may or may not have been modified slightly. I mean, I don't really want to get into that because, again, these guys aren't released yet. Uh, you can't expect too many other changes, though. I mean, looking at their card, this is pretty much the final version of what they have here aside from just a couple other number tweaks, which I'm not going to get into. But it was mainly switching out that ability of spiked armor for something that's entirely new, but is really, really cool. Basically representing the fact that these guys are have a horrific reputation about them and that enemies go like, oh man, those are the House Bolton Blackguard. If we get in combat with them, bad things are going to happen to us. Uh, that's more along the lines of what they do now, and I'm not going to exactly get into how that functions, but... That's something for you guys you can kind of ponder about. But I will talk to them a bit because they do bring a needed element into the Bolton list, and that's giving you some um, iota of defense. Because the rest of the Bolton stuff is kind of glass cannony, and these guys here are your exception to that. They're expensive. Now, their point cost uh, didn't change. They're still seven points. Uh, don't quote me on that in the final release, though, but uh, if memory serves, they are still seven points. Uh, I can't see that of changing or going to change. So they're a heavy investment, but you're getting that you know cool three plus defense for that and some other neat little tricks. These guys can act as a nice uh, you know defense unit for sticking your characters in there, such as um, you know Ramsey or Roos if you're running him as an attachment. And all of those characters are also going to benefit from the synergies that come with this unit, and they are going to in turn benefit from the effects that they bring. Which uh, let's say in the case of Ramsey, running him as your commander. So his attachment card, uh, he's going to stick Reek in the unit first off, which is one of his best benefits, because Reek can start throwing up panic counters. But Ramsey's commander ability is flay them all. It's an order that when an enemy engages this unit fails a panic test, 
One other enemy within long range of that unit must also make a panic test. So this nice little combo here of Reek throwing down a panic token on either the unit that you're engaged with or someone else within long range. And then this ability triggering, allowing you to, you know, then hurt two units of one uh, with that panic test. So that's a nice little combo and it works out really well there. Uh, it synergizes really well with what the Black Guards theoretically can do. But it also synergizes really well with the Cutthroats. The issue I have with sticking Ramsey and Cutthroats is the Cutthroats are a very uh, glass cannon unit. And throwing a commander in there is just kind of a risk because I don't ever expect my Cutthroats to survive any combat. Uh, I'm sorry, what I mean is game-wise, survive the till the end of the game. I expect them to get in, make their points back by dealing a bunch of damage, and then probably get killed along the way. So that's just kind of what I go with there. But the Black Guards, you know, they're the exception to that. They're not going to have the highest damage output, but that 3-plus defense save is absolutely just ironclad, and it's a good place to just stick your characters. So moving up to the other unit, the one I just talked about, was actually the Bolton Cutthroats. Uh, these guys potentially have the highest damage output of any 5-point unit, uh, and they trade that for having probably the worst defense of any 5-point um, unit because they're only rocking a 5-plus defense save and a 7-plus morale, which is nothing special in the slightest. They trade that, though, for having a 3-plus to hit, rolling a decent number of attack dice, and having Vicious and the ability to make the opponent vulnerable if they are targeting someone that hasn't activated. So... At five points, that damage output is pretty crazy. But again, you're trading it for a super glass cannon approach for um, taking any type of uh, damage yourself. You can stick a Dreadfort uh, Captain in them with them for one point, who has the spread fear ability. Each time an enemy engages this unit fails a panic test, one other enemy within long range of that unit becomes panicked. Gives you more ways to throw out those tokens. And again, talking about Ramsey and Re uh, sorry Ramsey and Roos, they both need those tokens to be out there to really gain the best benefit of all their tactics cards. So for one point, you know, it's a fantastic thing to throw out there. He's another one of those upgrades that I don't see people taking a lot, and it's just because you have to play him to really appreciate what he does and really what he can bring to the table. And even I was like that, because, you know, I you've got some other kind of sexy options that you can look and go, oh man, this does something really cool. This does something really cool as well, but in a much more utilitarian way. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about your attachments. But with the Bolton Cutthroats, again, you've got high damage glass cannon unit. I don't like making them super expensive with any two or three point upgrades um, because they just really don't have the staying power for it. To me, these guys are a cheap five point unit that I can throw at the enemy and they're probably going to make their points back. And worse comes worse, your opponent's going to have to invest some guys to actually take them down. And since they're so cheap, usually that investment is at least going to you know be tied in points. So, you know, that's really how I view these guys. Super high damage output and a throwaway unit that I don't have to deal with. I just throw them a threat, let them do their thing, and when they get killed, I knew it was going to happen, so whatever. Uh, the Bastards Girls. So, this is one of the trickiest units in the game to play, and I think because of that, a lot of people are, are going to try them out and play them maybe once or twice and maybe get disappointed and then go like, oh, well, I don't really like these guys or they're not worth it. And that's a big mistake, because these guys are terrifying, okay? Uh, these guys have a seriously large amount of just threat and damage output to likes that really you're not going to see a lot of in other 7-point units. But you have to play them correctly, because if you don't, they're going to suck for you. But if you play them correctly, these guys are terrifying. And so... The reason for that being is because, so you look at their stats, and you're going to see a bunch of averages across the board, except for a horrifyingly bad 6-plus defense, but that's fine, because we're going to get to that. Uh, you got movement of 5, okay, nothing to write home about. You got defensive 6-plus and a morale of 
five plus. So the five plus morale is fantastic because that's really, you know, you're a bunch of dogs. That's how you're going to, you know, avoid running away because you're a bunch of dogs. You don't get scared that easy. They have a ranged attack and a melee attack, which is already going to give them some options to, you know, how they approach a combat. Their range attack is going to be rolling four dice and hitting on three plus across the entirety of its span from green to red. And it's going to be long range. It also has a second caveat where if the defender rolls a one on any defense saves, they become vulnerable. So theoretically, you could just take that and have this unit just move across the battlefield, uh, theoretically with a 14-inch threat range, because remember you get a 2-inch shift, and just start pinging enemies in the hopes of making them vulnerable for your other units. Uh, that alone would be fairly annoying, but not really worth the 7 points that they bring to the table. What really is going to elevate them is the fact that they also have a melee attack, Blade and Fang, which is rolling 6 dice, 6 dice, and then 3 in its last rank, hitting on 3+. Uh, so it's a fairly nice attack. It's like a little mini halberdier uh, attack, but it also, you know, hits on a 3+. But you have to combine this with their Sikkim order, which is after this unit completes a ranged attack, the unit will make a free charge action targeting, uh, well, uh, targeting the enemy that they targeted. Okay, that's a clunky sentence, whatever. Uh, so let's look at how this actually plays out, all right? Um, first off, let's say you're just starting, you know, long range from someone, okay? Uh, you activate. Well, let's say you're actually 14 inches away. Why not? You activate. You shift forward 2 inches and make a range attack. Boom, you're shooting them 12 inches away. Um, okay, well, actually, they have to be a little closer for that. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So, sorry. You need to be a little bit closer than max than outside 14 inches, so don't do that. It's a bad strategy. Sorry, I just thought about that. Let's say you're starting within long range, okay? So, you're 12 inches away. You're going to shift up to 2 inches, and then you're going to shoot them at 10 inches away. Great on you. You then get to make a theoretical charge attack right here. Uh, you would need to roll a, granted on that one, a 5 or 6, but hey, that's, you know, uh, a 33% chance of happening. And then you get to charge into them and make another attack. Here's the thing that really what it's breaking down to in all this. You're making a ranged attack with your tracker's bow, okay? You might deal a hit or two. That's great, you know, well, theoretically in this case you're going to deal three hits. You're going to deal at least one wound, maybe make them vulnerable. If you make them vulnerable, fantastic. If you don't, you're still dealing damage, you're still triggering a panic test, which on average is going to cause another one to two wounds. So you're up to, you know, about three wounds on average. Then you're going to get to charge in. When you charge in with your six attacks, you're hitting on three plus rerolls. Uh, odds are you should be hitting with five or six of those. So you've hit with those five or six attacks, uh, they're going to fail about half of them. If they're vulnerable, then you have a chance of causing... Uh, usually they would fail about three of them. If they're vulnerable, five uh, between four and five saves, they'll fail on average. So then that's going to trigger another panic test. So there are two opportunities here to cause panic tests, two opportunities here to deal them just straight up damage with attacks. Uh, combine all that together, and you have the potential to just completely wipe out a unit between the two of these. Uh, this is not even factoring in, you know, any other buffs you give them, such as the fact that they're probably going to be panicked because you are playing uh, Boltons. Uh, that's just them in their baseline form. They deal a bunch of kind of like little dot damage, okay? They're never going to do this big massive swing like some other combat units are going to do, but they're going to sit their nickel and dime a unit down until it's completely destroyed. And this unit is actually probably one of the best ones to stick um, to the character attachments in here we have. So, for example, we have Brienne, made of Tarth, and then Brawn, the Sellsword. Now, these guys are available in the Kickstarter, and they'll be coming out to retail in a hero box uh, at some point. Um, 
But Braun is probably the best friend in the world to the Bastards Girls, because while you control the Wealth Zone, which is, again, something you want to do with neutrals, the unit gains plus one speed, plus two attack dice, and plus two to morale test rolls. This is going to bring their morale down to a three plus, so they're basically never going to take damage from that. They're going to get plus two attack dice, and that applies across all of their attacks. So all of a sudden, your bow attack becomes six dice hitting on threes, and your melee attack becomes eight dice hitting on threes. Um, the fact that you can do both those in a single activation, that's kind of good. And then you're getting plus one speed, which is doubly useful for these guys because they get to, you know, do that charge action after they make their range attack. So that means you can, you know, hit these guys at the maneuver zone, get them to move up a bit, shoot someone, and then you'll charge in with a speed of six, and then rolling, you know, six dice and eight dice. So they become really scary at Braum. Again, requires some setup and does make them a nine-point unit, uh, but you're paying for that, and, you know, they're going to do work for you. Okay, Braum is my absolute favorite attachment to stick with the Bastard Scrolls, and in the current game state that we have, um, he is my go-to attachment for them, okay? I can't even talk about anything else being remotely close. Uh, we will talk about Brienne, though. Brienne has the ability of Stalwart, so you gains plus two to morale test rolls. This is really good to actually stick her in a unit of Cutthroats, if you're going to stick her anywhere. Uh, this does kind of go against my philosophy of making the Cutthroats an expensive unit. I mean, theoretically, they're expensive at seven points there. Um... But I think that what she brings to the table can justify it. So she's going to make them stalwart, uh, give them plus two to their morale test rolls. So that's going to bring them basically to a five plus. And then she has Nightly Vow, which is before deployment, you select one enemy unit. Until the end of the game, the unit's melee attacks gain plus one to hit and roll plus two dice when targeting that enemy. So this means that Cutthroat unit now against that target is going to be rolling ten dice and hitting on twos. Even at their very worst case, they're rolling six dice and hitting on twos, and you still have Vicious and Vulnerable to throw on them. Uh, Brienne also goes well with the Blackguards because, you know, it helps them be a little bit more of a tank. But frankly, that's a big investment for that effect. And I'd rather stick most any of the other uh, characters, Ramsey or Rusin of the Blackguards, before I do that. But she goes really well in with the Bolton Cutthroats. Um, theoretically, you could stick her in with the Bastards Girls if you wanted to have a 3-plus morale save. But I feel you're kind of wasting a little bit of the effect there because, well, I say that. The fact that the Bastards Girls have a ranged attack to begin with is kind of a gravy factor on the unit. Um, if you throw in just Nightly Vow on their melee attack, then you're hitting on twos with eight dice. Nothing special with it, but on the other hand, it's eight dice hitting on twos. And you have a unit that's basically immune in all ways, shapes, and forms to morale tests because you're passing on three plus. Or at least, you know, the opponent's going to have to devote a large number of resources to actually fixing that problem. It does make them a nine-point unit, though, and that's the thing is, I look at that and I go, man, that's a pretty big investment. Uh, when I can go, I'll stick her in some cutthroats and get a large damage output as well, and it's only going to cost me seven, because that's two points I'm freeing up somewhere else. So, you know, there's some options, but I feel that Braum is going to be my absolute, sorry, Braum is going to be my absolute first pick for Bastards Girls. Brienne can go in some Bolton cutthroats, and she's not a bad choice to really give you a kind of, like, assassin unit that's going to create a unit that your opponent's going to have to... Uh, avoid when you're going to take them uh, take that one threat down. And the last neutral unit we have access to currently is the Flayed Men. Oh my god, all the hype right now. Um, so with the Flayed Men, you're paying a big, expensive 10 points for a massive cavalry unit here that is going to do some work, and it damn well better because if you don't get your points back on these guys, it's gonna suck. Um, the thing I have to state, though, is that to me the Flayed Men are 
they can be a big problem for some newer players at lower point games because they just don't know how to handle them. Like 30 points, if you put in a unit of Flademen, that's going to be a third of your army. So that's a big investment. At 40 points, I can justify it a bit more because, yeah, okay, that's going to be 25% of your army. Um, but I can at least play around with my points and make that work. The thing about them is that you are rocking uh, a cavalry unit with a 2-plus defense save, and that really there is super nasty. You've got a ton of attacks that you're going to be throwing out with your war flail. You never really get that bad, even if you lose a rank, you're still throwing 6 dice at 3-plus, and you have critical blow and vicious. Uh, so, you know, you can just deal a ton of damage with these guys. You've got Spread Fear built in as well, which is uh, kind of icing on the cake here. Um, but the big thing is that you're really paying for that 2-plus defense save. And, yeah, that's super nasty if your opponent doesn't know how to get around that, or worse comes worse, doesn't have the tools to get around that. Now, granted, they don't have the tools to deal with a high defense unit. That's probably a list creation uh, issue, uh, because that's something you need to account for. But if they don't, this can be a big problem. These guys are good at taking objectives, but frankly, you're paying 10 points for you to camp on objective. Oh, that feels so bad. These guys need to be getting out there. They need to be killing guys. The issue is that you cannot have them get bogged down with other units. And if they do, then they're probably not going to earn their points back. And I know that earning your points back is not necessarily something that you need to factor in every game because, you know, you need to score objectives, you need to do things like that. But... It's still something to factor. If you only you know killed five points worth of guys with your flademen, then technically it's a five-point deficit. Because I, I have to look at these guys, and I sit there and I go, that's two units of Bolton Cutthroats that I could be taking. That's two extra activations. And frankly, the Cutthroats can put out just as much damage. They're just not going to stay around longer. But the thing is, is that I'm giving up, uh, you know, again, an activation, and the potential for 24 wounds across, you know, the table here for a 12 wound unit of Flademen. Granted, again, that 2 plus save is going to really mitigate that, but if your opponent has the tools to take down the Flademen, such as any type of uh, thing that deals auto wounds, anything that uh, is going to hit their morale, because they will start crumbling really badly in that case, then there's a chance that your 10 point investment is just not going to work. And to me, when I look at that and I go, okay, losing a 10 point unit, oh, you're going to feel that. If I lose two five-point units, probably the amount of resources that was invested into making that happen is going to be, you know, an actual investment. So I don't feel so bad about that. But it's going to come down to play style because I'm not going to tell you that you absolutely shouldn't just run a 40-point, uh, four-unit flayed man list led by Roos because that's also really fun to play as well. Um, but, <laughs> sorry, I was I, that list is actually a lot of fun to play. Uh it's just that that list does have some pretty nasty hard counters against them. Um, and it also depends on the game mode you're playing. But on the other hand, it's a fun list to play. So the thing about the Flademen, if you really like having that big, super nasty unit, these guys are right up your alley. And the more points you play, the more I can justify the investment for them. So at 40 points, taking a unit, it really hurts me. And it does go like, man, that is, that's a solid investment that I could be doing elsewhere. At 50 points... Yeah, you know, I've got the points to throw around. I'll throw in some Flademen. Uh, at 30 points, uh, it's, it's, it, it, if they don't work for you, they're probably going to lose you the game. Okay, so you've got to be really careful with them. Now, the thing about 30 points is that there's going to be precious few, like, threats that can actually deal with these guys. But when they do, they're going to deal with it hard. And frankly, I know, you know, a lot of people hype these guys up. 
these guys here, like if, I've, if I have to use two five point units to take them down, that's fine because that means we're in even points trade here. The problem is these guys start getting hit in the flank or they start, you know, if they start, you know, getting hit by, you know, the crown zone or things like that. These guys will start crumbling down and that's really their biggest weakness is because your opponent can kind of see how to mitigate this because if you look at a two plus save and think that you should really start slamming your head against that until it's dead, well, play better, man. But if you look at that 6 plus morale and go, okay, I can hit them with the crown and cause a 7 plus check, then that starts becoming more manageable. Even if you just hit them in the flank, okay? Hit them in the flank with a unit, let's even stake Stark Sworn Swords. These guys, oh, that would actually turn out pretty badly for the Flademen. Hit them in the flank, turn on that Stark Fury, hitting on 3 plus critical blow. Let's say you get an average of like 6 hits right there, they've got a 3 plus save. Yeah, you're going to deal some wounds and probably take one down, but then you're going to have to factor in that now you're going to also be causing a minus one to their morale test, so they're going to be hitting on seven. Any type of vicious attack also really, really hurts these guys. So, funny enough, a counter to them is other Bolton units. So, a unit of Bolton Cutthroats engaging and taking down uh, the Flademen is actually something that can happen. Now, okay, I say engaging. The Flademen should never really get um, engaged by Bolton Cutthroats if they're just kind of out there chilling because you're cavalry. But, you know, people make bad positions all the time. But again, if you've got to take a couple units to, you know, hammer these guys down, then so be it. Uh, the other thing you can do is actually just tie them up with a unit, because there's no other unit that's going to rival their points. So if I tie them up with a five-point unit and they're tied up for, you know, two to three rounds, well, congrats. They've been mitigated, and I've, you know, used my effects there to, uh, well, I've greater economy of actions for me. So, you know, that's my thoughts on them. I would, you know, you can definitely build a list around them. You can use them to supplement a list. But just be smart about it because just because you have a big scary unit doesn't mean that it's actually going to be a big scary unit. It, there's a strong chance that it's not going to earn its points back. So you got to be smart about it. All right, guys. So I believe that's going to kind of wrap up everything about the neutral faction. Um, as far as my thoughts in general, like why I like playing these guys. And this turn, it turned into a mini overview of them as well. But hopefully this has given you some insight into the faction as a whole and you can judge whether you want to try them out for yourselves because they are definitely in interesting playstyle compared to the Starks and Lannisters. And again, as I've said uh, numerous times through this, you're going to probably have to play these guys a few times to really get um, get good with them because the Starks have a very clear aggressive playstyle. The Lannisters have a very clear I'm going to mess with you know your morale and just be really hard to take down playstyle. The neutrals are going to go into each game with just a symbiote of a battle plan but they really need to have the ability to adapt on the fly. And that's their greatest strength, but it's also the thing that's going to take you the longest to master. So this is kind of the epitome of a um, easy-to-pick-up faction that, well, sorry, I say easy-to-pick-up in the fact that, yeah, you can look at them and go like, oh, yeah, they're going to do a lot of damage. And then you're going to start losing games and go like, man, these guys suck. And it's just going to come down to knowing what's in your deck, knowing how best to utilize it, and really knowing that you have the tools you need you just have to know when to use those tools. So practice, 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 and the neutral faction can be a super rewarding experience for you, especially if Bolton, because you just get to be just the absolute bastard to your opponent here and just always have some nasty thing you're going to do to them. And frankly, who doesn't love doing that? All right, guys, so we'll join you next time, and we'll talk about something completely different. Until then, signing off.